We need to be awake tonight. You know what? That's not my screen. I got my screens up there. You got them? There it is. All right. That's my screen. You got mail. Y'all remember that? Have you ever had AOL? You've got mail. Well, we're dealing with the letters to the churches, so we all got mail. And uh, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to kind of begin, because in reality we're not going to start with verse 1 yet. We need to go back a few verses in chapter um, 1. And uh, we're going to begin, actually, um, in verses uh, 16 through 20. But we are going to be looking at, in a very general way, an understanding of the next two chapters, which is chapters uh, 2 and 3, dealing with the seven churches of Asia Minor that Jesus is writing letters to, and we'll see why. Let me get my stuff here together. Okay. We're going to begin in verse 16 of chapter 1. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Now remember, this is the vision that John saw of Jesus, the glorified Christ. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was, as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Now he commands, John, in verse 19, to write the things which thou hast seen, speaking of the things that he has seen of the past tense, Really, in essence, what he just saw of the glorified Christ. And the things which are, which are the things that are present, which we're going to deal with in chapters 2 and 3, dealing with the church. Now, part of chapter 1 is also in the present, because he's seen Jesus at that moment as well. And the things which shall be hereafter, which means the things that are yet to come, the things of the future. And he says the mystery... Of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, if there is one truth that we as believers in Jesus Christ must take hold of and understand. No matter what we see in the body of Christ in these last days, the truth that we need to take hold of and understand is that Jesus loves the church. 
Jesus loves the church. Can you all understand that? Okay, I'm not trying to treat you as little kids. But I need you to know that Jesus loves the church. When the Lord first promised to build His church, He made this statement to Simon Barjona. Now who is Simon Barjona? It's Peter. And he calls him that here because there is some understanding in the name of Simon because he's going to call him Peter here as well. But he makes a statement to Peter in response to Peter's confession that was done at Caesarea Philippi, which is a place that we went to not too long ago. About a week ago we were there, at the very place where Jesus pointed to this massive rock, and that is the very, uh, where, where, the, where the waters of, of the Jordan River begin. And there was that confession that Peter made when Jesus had asked the question, Who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So with that in mind, this is the response that we find in Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18. Jesus said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. You see, God revealed that to Peter. And I say also unto thee, That thou art Peter. He calls him Petros. Which means a small stone. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, small stone. And upon this rock. Kind of using that big huge rock as a backdrop. Upon this Petra. Large rock. I will build my church. And what he was signifying by that was that upon that great rock of Peter's confession, that Christ is the Son of the living God, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, he says he would build his church on that confession, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that he was building. And you have to understand the word church here because the word church is the word ecclesia, which literally means the called out ones. Please remember that. That's going to become very important at the end of the study. The called out ones. Or the called out ones is the church as a whole. So we know from Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 what we just read a little while ago, that after Jesus rose from the dead, He would have with Him the keys of hell. Now understand this, that the gates having been opened now, because Jesus has the keys when He came, when He, when he rose again from the dead. The gates have been opened, and those captive who died in faith were set free to ascend with Him to paradise. 
And he still holds the keys. Jesus still holds the keys. Don't get the idea that Peter has the keys to heaven and hell. He doesn't. Jesus has them. Y'all understand that? Okay. Please understand that because that's biblical. Jesus has the keys. And he still holds the keys. And what is significant about this is that the gates of hell can never close again on those who die in faith as members of the body of Christ, which is the church. The gates of hell shall not ever close again on all those who are in faith in Christ. How do we know this? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 says, We are confident, Paul says, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. If we die in faith in Christ, we are then taken into the presence of the Lord. That's exciting, isn't it? That's a wonderful truth. That's a wonderful thought. And even though we are still in these bodies of flesh, how many of you came in here with a body of flesh today? Well, it was pretty tired, wasn't it? <laughs> After a long day. How many of you took a day off today? Anybody? Okay, see, we all were working. Every one of us working. Even though we are still in these bodies of flesh, yet to be made perfect, by the way, right? We know that. We're going to be made perfect. Not these bodies in particular. Why? Because we get a new body later. That is perfect. But what is he doing in this life today? He's perfecting us, isn't he? While we are in these bodies of flesh, he's perfecting us. So, while we are still in these bodies of flesh yet to be made perfect, we believers are a part of his church. Having been, made, having been placed into his body, not by our works or anything that we could have done, but we were placed in his body by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Whoops, this thing is very active today. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, notice what it says. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body... Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, praise the Lord, isn't that wonderful? Whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. By one spirit we are baptized into one body. So, by the way, if you, if you, aren't a, a, if you, if you are a Christian but you haven't been baptized, it would be good to do that. Not because of baptism is going to save you. But it gives you the opportunity to make that public confession of what Christ has already done. But it's just, you know, let us know and we'll, we'll baptize you. We'll bring a bathtub in here and we'll do it right here. But it's not that it saves you. And I'll talk about that in a moment as well in just a little bit. So because of this, we can no longer be imprisoned. Listen carefully. Because of this, we can no longer be imprisoned and confined behind the gates of hell. Is that something to shout amen about? Isn't that wonderful? And then consider this in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23. Now remember that Paul in chapter 5 is using marriage as a way of also giving an analogy of how Christ deals with the church. So he says in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. Notice, even as Christ is the head of the church. So Christ is the head of the church, which is the body. Now we learned that also in Colossians chapter 1. And you can go to, go to Colossians sometime later and read that. But, but here, notice what it says. Even as Christ is the head of the church and He is the Savior of the body. 
Who saves your body today as far as the body as a whole? Your big toe doesn't save you, does it? I mean, I mean, you know, you stub your big toe, and what does your mind tell you? You just stubbed your toe. <laughs> you know. And, and, and so it's, it's the mind that try to, tries to keep you from stubbing it the next time, you see. So think about that in, in essence, how, how the body, how the head is the savior of the body. And Jesus is the head of the church. The head loves the body. And it takes care of the body. does everything it does, it can to give signals to the body to do the things that need to be done for the sake of the body's health. So Jesus loves the church. Go down to verse 25 of Ephesians 5 and read down through verse 27. Again, using that same analogy. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, what is that saying? First of all, it says that Christ loves the church. And he gave himself. In what way did he give himself? He died for the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle. Or any such thing. But that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, in a, in a way, that tells us something about the church right now. He, his, his whole desire is to take it from having spots and wrinkles and any such thing. And making it holy and without blemish. Because he loves the church. He loves the body. And see, one day we will be brought to perfection, both individually and corporately as the body of Christ, as the church. In Hebrews 12, verse 23, look at the last phrase, but look at the whole thing. It says, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So that's the phrase that lets us know that that's what we're headed toward. Toward just men being perfect. But until then... We assemble in churches that are full of spots and wrinkles. And I'm not talking about you individually looking into the mirror in the morning and saying, Oh, look at those spots and wrinkles. It's about the church. Because we're all human. Because we all, each and every one of us has a spot or a wrinkle or two or three or ten or twenty. Some more, some less. Nevertheless, no matter how many spots or wrinkles you have, we belong to Christ. Doesn't that sound good? We belong to Jesus. And He is in our midst. Remember, remember from chapter 1 that Jesus is among the, the churches. He's in the midst of the twelve, I'm sorry, the seven candlesticks, right? Which represent the church as a whole. And He's in the midst. I mean, we would think, you know, if Jesus really just didn't like that, he, he would just say, you know, I'm tired of being in the midst of all of this spot and wrinkle, of all of this such things, any such thing like that. I, you know, I think I'm just going to leave you guys alone. I'm getting out of here. Aren't you glad he didn't do that? And aren't you glad he's not doing it now? 
So we belong to Christ and he's in the midst of, uh, through the Holy Spirit. What is he doing through the Holy Spirit in the church? He is comforting us. He's leading us. He's teaching us. He's exhorting us. He's convincing us and convicting us and he's chastening us. We all go through a little chastening from time to time, don't we? Why? Because we need it. And the Bible tells us that the discipline of the Lord is good for us. Why? Because He loves us. Doesn't it say that just as a father loves his children and corrects his children, so does God correct us and he lo- because He loves us. He doesn't correct us to, you know, to, to, to banish us. Or even still to take away what He gave us as eternal life. No, He corrects us along the way. And He teaches us. And all of this, His comforting and leading, His teaching, His exhorting, His convincing, His chastening, all of that equals to what? His building the church. He said, upon that confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so with all of this in mind, we are presented now, as we get to chapter 2 of Revelation and chapter 3, we are presented with the picture of the seven local churches in Asia Minor. And what we see is amazing as we get to these two chapters. Because here were seven real churches. They were real churches. And they were receiving letters now from Jesus Christ Himself. They're receiving letters from the Lord, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, God the Son. And these letters would intentionally speak to every generation of churches, not just to those seven, because those seven represent all churches of all times, of every generation, because all are representing the present, the church age. Go back to Revelation 1, verse 19. Jesus said to John, Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are. That's the key. The things which are. Remember, this is the key to the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which are to come, or that shall be hereafter. Let's talk a little bit about these churches. Now, these churches all existed at the time that John wrote the Revelation, which was around 95 AD. And what is so interesting and significant about these churches is that they were all most unpromising churches. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, that person has a a, a promising future, right? That uh, that football team has a promising future season and then they play <laughs> what happened to the team what happened to the team you know what happened to that person that had a promising future what about these churches here are seven churches 
But on the outside, they're unpromising. Some of these churches were outwardly strong, yet they were full of compromise, even moral decay. A couple of them were spiritually strong, the churches of Smyrna and and Philadelphia. And yet they were physically weak. And all of them, all seven of them were quite fallible and imperfect. Persecuted and subject to being scattered. And if left to themselves, and listen carefully again, if left to themselves, were destined not to survive very long. The key to that statement I just made is the phrase, if left to themselves. I want to ask you a question. Are you, are you thankful that the Lord did not leave you to yourself once you came to salvation? Aren't you thankful that He did not leave you to yourself? Because if it was just left up to us, okay, well, I'll kind of save you. I'll kind of take you into consideration about being in my church. But you mess up one time, man, and you're gone. Poof. Dust. Ashes. If left to yourself. That's what would happen. But Jesus never left us to ourselves. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus said, I will be with you always? Uh, That comforts me. Anybody else comforted by that statement? When Jesus said, I I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now that's a promise that I can rest upon. I will be with you even to the end of the age, the end of the world and beyond. To infinity and beyond. I'll be with you. Jesus is so good at keeping his promises. We survive not because of us. We survive not because of our great intellect, because of our great understanding, because of our great wisdom or age. We survive because Jesus died and rose again for us. He conquered sin and death for us. So you see, if left to themselves, these seven churches wouldn't have made it. Yet Christ was in their midst and the Holy Spirit was speaking to them with encouragement along with exhortation. That's what we're going to find in these letters. Promising blessings to the overcomers and warnings to those which were in danger of losing their light in witness and their light of witness. Even the very first church, Ephesus, the one we're going to see next time, the first seven verses of chapter 2. Here was a church that was alive, it was alive in a certain way, but it left its first love. It was mechanical. It did things, but it was cold. And Jesus said, repent or I'll take out that candle. 
He says, do your first works. Love Jesus again. They were in danger of losing their light of witness. Christ is in the midst of all of the churches and so the revelation is for all the Lord's servants and all of the Lord's followers in all ages and in all generations so that all believers could know the things that are to take place in the end time. This is one reason why most of you are here today. I think we kind of alluded to that back in our first, first couple of studies. We came to know, to, 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 to study the book of Revelation because we want to know what's going to happen. We want to know what's going to happen in the days to come. What the Bible is saying, what Jesus says about it, what the prophets said about the end times. But for the briefest of moments, we need to answer a couple of questions. First of all, if Jesus was making the revelation accessible to all of his servants, why is the letter addressed to only seven churches in Asia? And why was the revelation not addressed to all the churches down through the centuries? Well, as I previously mentioned, there certainly were churches mentioned, in particular in the book of Acts, other churches, a lot of other churches mentioned. Uh, not to mention, of course, Corinth, the, the church in Corinth and, uh, and, 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 uh, and uh, in other places like Troas, Miletus, Colossae, Hierapolis, or Hierapolis, uh, that are not addressed by Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3. Rome, the great book of Romans was written to the church in Rome, but we don't see them mentioned in these seven churches. The Apostle John certainly knew of many other churches himself, being an apostle who, who actually ministered in a, in a large, large region, which was Asia Minor. But why messages only to the seven mentioned? John doesn't tell us why. So that's the answer there. He doesn't, he doesn't even give us a hint. <laughs> okay? So that pretty much takes care of that question. So we can conclude then. We can conclude then that the seven churches are representing all churches. The seven churches are representing all churches. Now, We've talked about the number seven, because seven is going to be a very prominent number throughout the book of Revelation. But the number seven can indicate, can indicate perfection, a perfect number, or a completed action, or a totality. talks about a completeness of something. Hence, the seven churches would therefore represent the total church throughout history. This is one reason why these seven letters are for us today. The characteristics now that are found in these churches must be the same kind of characteristics that are found in all other churches. Their problems are our problems. You know, some people will leave a church because they don't like something. And they'll go to some other church. Now, there may be a valid reason... But, but, but a lot of times some people just go this place and that place and here and there and whatever, you know. And they don't like the problems in one church and they go to another church and they take their problems and take them to another church that has their own problems. Are we getting a picture here of how we just shuffle problems around? If, 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 if indeed we only move because of problems. Because no church is Perfect. Every church has the characteristics of these seven churches. 
whatever their weaknesses were or are. So their problems are our problems and Christ's exhortations to them equally uh, or apply equally uh, to us. Now the second thing is that the characteristics of the churches clearly show that the churches are representative of all other churches. So the seven represent all churches and the characteristics of the churches show that the churches are representative of all other churches. Do I sound a little repetitive? It's okay. I made it, uh, I did it that on purpose, okay? I did it all on purpose. It's important for us to see that in this rep- repetition, there is still yet a, a building of an understanding of an idea of why there are seven letters to seven churches, but it's to the whole church. The conditions that existed in each of the seven churches differed. All the conditions differed. And as we study the different types of churches in society and throughout history, we will clearly see that there are seven types of churches. And therefore, in addressing the seven churches, the Lord Jesus was addressing all the churches of the earth. Every church is being addressed by these seven messages. Each church, no matter its condition, can discover what kind of church it is by honestly taking inventory of its major traits and checking those traits against the seven churches. There's a perfection there in the way the Lord wrote those seven letters to seven churches that represent all churches of all generations and of all history. But here's the point. The messages to the seven churches were given for personal application and they were given for prophetic perspective. Personal application and prophetic perspective. And we will see that when we start getting into each church. I'm just letting you know right now this, these next two chapters will take us eight weeks, counting this one, this week. Because this is the introduction, then we go one church at a time. Because each church has certain things that we need to deal with in every church. So in the following two chapters, uh, two and three, Jesus gives a personal message to each of the seven churches. Now the messages will be both co- uh, corporate and collective for all as a church, and individually. Now they are listed in the order that you would visit them in Asia Minor if you followed a clockwise circle upon leaving Ephesus. So let's get back to a little bit of of our map thing here for just a moment because um, there's there's Ephesus. Y'all see that? Okay. Notice it goes in a kind of a clockwise direction. Each one. Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So it goes in that, in that order. Okay? So it's, it's, it's fun. Clockwise. And, that, and, and there, there has to be some reason on that, and we'll talk about that when we get to each individual church. But it must be noted that all seven churches were persecuted. Now, this is, this is something that all of them went through. This is something that they were all dealing with together. 
They were all persecuted under the rule of the Roman Emperor Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96 A.D. 81 A.D. to 96 A.D. They all faced the malevolent, evil methods of persecution developed by the Romans. Some of those things were like, uh, for example, people were boiled in oil. Some of them were strung up by their fingers. Others had sharp objects pushed underneath their fingernails. We could go on, but I'm sure you're already feeling a little bit queasy about these things. And you know what would happen after the persecution? They were all killed. Whoever was persecuted, they would be killed. They made it hurt, and then they killed you. These seven churches existed in the midst of this type of persecution. But why were they persecuted? What did they do that was so wrong? Now, Take hold of those two questions and keep them in your mind as you consider what's happening in our world today concerning the church of Jesus Christ. Take note that most of the believers during Domitian's reign were second generation Christians, most of the first generation having passed on. But those in the churches were persecuted for five basic reasons. First of all, they had a zeal for winning people to Christ. That was the main, that was the main reason why they were being persecuted, because they had a zeal for winning people to Jesus Christ. They were missionaries. They were missionary churches. They all were missionary churches. They all were encouraged to tell people about Jesus Christ, to win them to the love of Christ, to win them to the mercies of Christ, to win them to the salvation that can only come through Jesus Christ. What's happened to the missionary church today? Well, keep that question in mind and pray about that. Secondly, they, they claimed obedience uh, to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I left out two. They claimed obedience to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I mean, that certainly didn't endear them to Caesar. <laughs> because everybody that was in the Roman uh, Empire had to bow to Caesar, whichever Caesar it was. You go all the way back to Julius Caesar, and then there was Augustus Caesar, and there were other Caesars. There was Nero Caesar, and, and here in this case, Domitian Caesar. Caligula. These were all evil, wicked men, pagans, heathen, whatever you want to call them. But they wanted the worship. They wanted the praise. They acted as if they were gods that would never die, and yet they died. How interesting that the scriptures tell us when man makes gods. They make gods out of wood. The wood, you know, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. But when you make a man a god... They have eyes and they have ears, but they don't have life. They're dead. 
Thirdly, they refused to bow to pagan idols. Believers in Christ would never bow to idols, even if proclamations were made by the emperors themselves. And they did that. The, 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 the Caesars all made proclamations that people had to bow down to them, but the Christians wouldn't do that. They had a rich Jewish heritage, didn't they? We have a rich Jewish heritage from the, the Hebrew Scriptures. What does it tell us? It tells us about Daniel, who would not bow down to the, the gods and, 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 that were made by Nebuchadnezzar and all the others. He wouldn't bow down to Darius. And we don't bow down to men. We only bow to the Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Fourthly, they were rumored, by the way, that to be cannibals. For eating, as it were, the body and the blood of Jesus at communion. They heard that they eat the body and the blood of Jesus. They're cannibals. And out of that came other rumors. The rumors were, by the way, that uh, Christians, at some point, would actually, in, in secret rites and ceremonies, would, would actually eat their children. That was, of course, a lie. But... You tell people a lie long enough and they'll start believing it. 21st century? United States of America? Is that not happening around us today? Which is the reason why there is such a battle for truth in our society and country? And fifthly, simply, they were just looking down, they were just looked down upon as trash of the earth. They didn't live up to the standards of the Roman Empire, of the Republic. That's an interesting thing there today, too. We think of Rome as being so wonderfully uh, helpful, uh, Rome and Greece are wonderfully helpful for establishing. Uh, some forms of government, uh, the democratic or republic and democratic form of government, which is, when it's done by man, it's not going to work. We used to say it's the best thing around until the lies go out and then all of a sudden things start changing. But I don't want to talk about today. Let's get back to the seven churches. Because you see, the true Christ-honoring church And listen carefully. The true Christ-honoring church will be hated by the world. Oh, I I guess I have to talk about today. The true Christ-honoring church will be hated by the world. If the church begins to turn in any direction towards some of the, uh, some of the issues that uh, the, the, the world is saying, you know, you guys need to be a little bit more tolerant. And if we start becoming tolerant about things that actually the scriptures are telling us are, are sinful things that we need to, you know, uh, we need to take a stand against those things, but no, we want to embrace them because we need to be tolerant about things. So we throw sin out the window, and then we just say, well, you know, we're, we're a nice church. We're not like those fundamentalists who believe the Bible. Folks, that's happening today. I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is happening today. 
We're a Bible-believing church. We teach the Bible because we believe it's the Word of God. And there are people today who think that we're fanatics. Well, bless them, that's the only right thing they know. We are fanatics. We're fanatics about Jesus Christ. But not fanatic in the weird sense. We're passionate. And that's the difference. We're passionate for Jesus Christ. Why? Because we know He's alive. Because we know what He did for us. We know that He rose again from the dead. And that He's with us even now. He's poured out His Holy Spirit. He's given us understanding of His Word. And we're able to understand it so that we can live our lives according to His will and purposes. Until the day that He comes again. And by the way, we're waiting for Him to come again. And if you think we're crazy about waiting for Him to come again, think about this. We're waiting for Him to come and take us out of this earth. And we're going to get out of here just in the, you know... At the, at the very sound of that trumpet, he's going to take us out of here. Does that sound fanatical? Well, it might to the world, but I'll tell you this. The Bible says it's going to happen. And we need to be ready for it. It was hated then. The church was hated then during the missions reign. And it is still hated today. Jesus Christ, the cross, the word of God, God himself, and the church, they continue to remain the targets of Satan and all who, whom he has blinded. It has been said that the best commentary on any church is what the world thinks of it. The best commentary of any church is what the world thinks of it. If it hates us, then we must be doing our job. Jesus warned his disciples of these things. In Matthew 10:22. He said, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. He said in Matthew 24, verse 9, they, uh, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. In John 15, verses 18 through 21, he said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him. That set me. I want you to consider the extent of the Apostle Paul's preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it, it is said in Acts 14 verse 22. When it's dealing with what Paul did in his own ministry. One of the things that it says that he does is that he confirmed the souls of the disciples. And exhorted them to continue in the faith. And that we must, notice this, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And even Peter himself, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, he said, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is... Acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called. Because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. 
I think to tell the church that God wants you healthy and wealthy is, is, is really a, a detriment to the church. Try to find a careful word. It's so unfortunate that so many charlatans have just taken people for their life savings just because people are so gullible and vulnerable because they have not discerned through the Spirit these things. When we should be telling people, listen, Jesus said he's coming soon. He'll take care of you. He'll give you what you need. Don't focus on things outward. Focus on things eternal. Keep your eyes on eternity. God will take care of all the things we need. Are any of us lacking? Not one bit. We have everything we need because we have Jesus Christ. That's the personal application that we're going to deal with when we get to the seven churches. But there is also the prophetic perspective. There is the prophetic perspective. How did the churches fit into this prophetic book, the book of Revelation? We know that John is writing down instructions from Christ Jesus to the ministers of the pastors. Now the word is angelos, and and we're going to look at that next week in a little more detail, but the word angelos is A-G-G-E-L-O-S, but it's pronounced angelos, which of course is the root for our understanding of the word angel, right? But the word angel also is used for messengers. So some believe it's angels and some believe it's pastors or, or, or ministers of the churches. We'll talk about that more next time. But nonetheless, what do these things have to do with prophecy? What are these messages that come through this, these messengers? Oh, by the way, in reality, no matter whether it's a pastor, a minister, or an angel that brings the message, the reality is the message is for the church. Did you, have, you, you understand that? The message is for the church. So the church needs to heed the words of the messages. But what do these things have to do with prophecy? That's the question. To a certain extent, he isn't foretelling the future. He's writing to present churches. But the instruction does have prophetic importance. It does have prophetic importance. First of all, now this might sound similar to what we heard earlier. And guess what? You're right. We've been brought back into this circle of understanding. The seven churches represent all churches. That's part of prophetic, the, the prophetic perspective. What was written 2,000 years ago applies to us today. That's prophetic. Secondly, the seven churches represent different churches. As we see the breakdown of each church in the next few weeks, we're going to realize that these churches are different. This is, this is a prophetic understanding. We're not all the same. We grew out of the seed of, of that one church in, 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 in Jerusalem into churches all over the world. But thirdly, 
The seven churches represent different church members. So now we're dealing with not only different churches, but different church members. The seven churches represent all churches. Let's go back to that first one. It is a message to the total church. He that has an ear, let him hear. You know, that's going to be given to every church of the seven. He that has an ear, let him hear. Do you all have ears? All right, so you're hearing this, right? Okay. I know that some people have a problem with hearing. So, but you, but you're, you all hear me, okay? And if you need me to shout, I'll shout. But I don't think I've had to shout today. We've been pretty cool today. All right. But he that has an ear, let him hear. The, the hearing is to receive the message and pay attention to it. Every one of the seven letters concludes with that phrase. In other words, in whatever age you are alive, these messages are for you. Secondly, the seven churches represent different churches. Throughout the history of the church, there have been different types of churches. The Ephesian church is one type of a church. As I mentioned before, it is a church that fell out of love with Jesus. And then it's the the church of Smyrna. That's another type of church. What does it represent? It represents the suffering, persecuted church. And so on and so forth. We're going to get into those as we go along. Now the seven churches represent different church members. For example, an Ephesus type member is one who grows cold toward Christ. A Smyrna type member is one who pays for their boldness for Christ by suffering. You, you see how it, it, it breaks down from just the whole church down to an individual. Now all of this has prophetic implications simply because the seven churches depict the respective stages of development and change of the body of Christ during the ensuing centuries. As the centuries go on. Now what doesn't change? Jesus doesn't change. The, the, the gospel doesn't change. The message doesn't change. The Word of God doesn't change. God doesn't change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. But but, we change. Society changes. Cultures change. Languages change all around us. They had to take the gospel and, and, and fit it to every language that began to develop. Aren't you glad? Because... I tell you what, I've been, I've been doing my own study in Hebrew and it's like, whew, man, that takes a while to learn this language. But it's been given to us in English. And it's complete. And it's understood. And it's good for us because it's life. See the changes then. And the book of Revelation, all of it, all of it, all of it is said to be prophecy. And if there is any prophecy in it concerning the church age, it has to be in these two chapters. So those are the prophetic implications. And and one other thing. The last four of the churches mentioned. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The last four churches mentioned will one way or another survive until the return of Christ. How do we say that? Because if they represent stages of church development which persist until the end of the age, then we can conclude all of this from these statements that we find in in the letters to those four churches. First of all, to Thyatira in Revelation 2.25, It says, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. Do you see that? 
Hold fast till I come. Now, Thyatira isn't a great church. It deals with false doctrine. It allows false doctrine. But he's encouraging him to hold fast to what is right and what is true until he comes. Revelation 3.3 This is to the church of Sardis. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, thou, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So there Jesus is giving something of a, of a warning that says, when I come and you're not ready, boom, I won't get you. See? And then to the church of Philadelphia, the church of the love of Christ. It says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold, fat, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. You hold on to what I've given you, and that no one takes it from you. Don't lose the opportunity that I've given you. By the way, the church of Philadelphia does not receive a condemnation at all. The church of Laodicea, which is the last church mentioned, receives no commendation, only condemnation. And this is what he says to him, though. This is the encouragement. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. See, again, there is that understanding that these last four churches... The, the, under, the, the, the thought of, of the characteristics are going to be in, this last, in these last days. He says, I will come in and will sup with him and he with me if he opens the door. And remember, this is speaking to the church. A church that says, I am rich and have need of nothing. And yet they're poor and blind and naked. That's what I was describing earlier. Those that get this preaching that, oh, listen, you should have it all. We have it all in Jesus Christ. Lastly, let's look at the format given to the seven messages. The format of the seven messages. I want to close with this. We are, wow, we made it on time. The format of the seven messages. You'll find all of these, except in those exceptions I gave you, <laughs> there's a salutation. There is a, a statement of, of Christ's identi identification as the sender. We'll see that each one is a little different, but it's still Jesus that is identifying. Thirdly, there's a statement regarding the condition of the church. What the church is going through at that moment in time, at that, at that uh, 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 present time. And then there is a comment and exhortation. Whoops. I just messed up my notes. Isn't it great 
I'm just correcting my notes. Because exhortation is missing. No, I corrected it there. It's a comment and exhortation. So he comments about the church and he exhorts the church. Now remember, exhortation is, can be encouragement or warning. Most of it is warning. And then there is a promised or threatened coming. Jesus promises to come or he's threatening to come. Which do you think is going to apply to which? He promises to come or he threatens to come. It all depends on the church and what the condition of the church is. And then there is an admonition to heed. He admonishes every church to listen. Let him who has ears, let him hear. And then there is a promised blessing. So that is the format of the seven churches. Now, one thing that we need to remember is that the church history, or is that church history is marked by periods of revivals and growth, as well as periods of corruption and decline and apostasy. And while the seven churches can represent various times periods of the church through, through the ages, it must be stated that every type can be found in every period. Every type of every church can be found in every period. And so we have to deal with the things that trouble the church, especially in the last days. But this begs the question, and here's the question. I want you to see the question. Has the church failed? Has the church failed? You know, we can say, well, that's all depends, you know. It depends on some people that say, you know, we go out there, and boy, if you're not out there winning souls to the Lord Jesus Christ every day and, you know, and doing this and doing that, you know, boy, you have failed. You're just a failure of a church. Really? What's the purpose of the church? Maybe we better ask that question in light of this question. Has the church failed? Do you want to know what the world says? The world says, yes, the church has failed. Yes, the church has failed. But you know what we can say? No, the church hasn't failed. The world blames the church for not bringing about a golden age without war and without poverty and without diseases and injustices and disasters and the like. Well, if you guys serve the, the one you say is the Lord over all and the God over all, then, then how come this world is in such a mess? You're the problem, right? You see how the world can, can put all of the, the bad on the church? But that isn't the purpose of the church. It has never been the purpose of the church to bring about a golden age without war and poverty, diseases, injustices, and the like. The church has been around for more than 2,000 years and the world has become worse. But the church hasn't failed. The church has not failed and we can say that because God's plan is on its perfect schedule. God's plan is on its perfect schedule. Turn to John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. I thought I was finished. I'm not. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. This is Jesus speaking. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. 
Does that sound like failure? And him that cometh to me, I will, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Has Jesus failed? Did Jesus fail on the cross? Did Jesus fail by, by staying in the tomb? No, he didn't fail. He rose again from the dead. And by the way, he did die and that was no failure. He had to die because if he doesn't die, we don't live. Does that make it clear? The understanding of the, the way that we got to turn everything upside down because you see, when, when, we, when we trusted the Lord Jesus, we, we're dead and we become alive because he who was alive died for us, but he rose again from the dead so that we can have eternal life. That's no failure. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which He has given me, I should lose nothing. Does that sound like failure? We should lose, He should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. There's no failure there. But you'll notice something. I'm putting all the work on Jesus Christ, aren't I? Why? Because he's the head of the church. He's the authority and the rule over the church. Is the church failed? Come on, the church hasn't failed. Why? Because Jesus is the head. Uh, can you see that? I mean, if we just look at the people in the church, I mean, yeah, sometimes I think, ooh. Hi. No, we don't fail. Why? Because he doesn't fail. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 9.22 To the weak became I as weak that I may gain the weak. I made all, I am made all things to all men. Notice that I might by all means save all. Some. He knew that. He was quite aware he wasn't going to save them all. Why? Because Paul doesn't save. Jesus saves. And if he was a great evangelist, we would think they'd all be saved. Paul was the greatest apostle. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem. What almost happened? They mobbed him. They nearly killed him in Jerusalem. Because he preached the truth. He did what he needed to do because he was obedient to the Lord. Folks, we think success is all in numbers. God doesn't think that way. Our success is based on our obedience, not in notches on our belt. Please understand that. Now, the church of Jesus Christ is, call, is a called out group. And again, I refer you to Ecclesia. They are a called out group. We are called out of the world into the kingdom of His wonderful and marvelous Son. The church is a remnant. And its purpose is to be a vehicle for calling out a people for His name. Not for our name. His name. I'm going to leave you with Romans 8.30. And I emphasize a few, I emphasize the word he. So you understand this. 
Moreover, whom he did predestinate. Who predestines? The Lord. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. He called. I didn't call you. Jesus called you. And notice then, and whom he called, them he also justified. Paul doesn't justify you. I don't justify you. No one justifies you but Jesus. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Folks, the church has not failed because Christ loves the church. God's plans are not frustrated. God will continue to call out his flock. Now let's be obedient and let's let people know about Jesus Christ. Let's give an answer to every man about the hope that lies within us. That hope is Jesus. And when people say, why are you, you know, so joyous? Why? You know, especially around this season, you know, some people can't understand us. Yeah, we're singing, you know, Hark the Herald and all kinds of stuff, you know. People say, man, you're too happy. I'm not happy. I'm joyous. Happiness is conditional. Joy is everlasting. I rejoice because Jesus has conquered sin and death. I rejoice because he's given me eternal life. I rejoice because you can have eternal life too. And what a way to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ by leading others to the one who grew to be a man who took our sins, our sins, and put them on a cross and died, shed his blood, buried and resurrected and is alive today and who says, I am with you always. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the world and beyond. Let's pray.